Welcome to Confronting the Madness, a podcast exploring the psychological issues facing individuals, communities, and society today. Your host, Mark Corthius, is fascinated with the different mental health challenges we are confronted with in these unprecedented and turbulent times. Our first guest is Cody Lakebull. Cody and Mark have worked together over the last five years in the world of mental health. Cody is an entrepreneur, speaker, investor, and the founder of Raven Link Investment. Cody's story covers addiction, family tragedy, perseverance, and all the things he learned along the way. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did with Cody Lakefold. I'm here with uh, Cody Lakefold, my very first guest on the Confronting the Madness podcast. Cody, thanks so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Doing good. You know, it's Christmas holidays, so it's a festive time of year, despite the plague. <laughs> well, let's just start with a, with the softball question just to start us off. Yeah. 2020 has obviously been the strangest year of all time. Oh, no kidding. Uh, psychologically, mentally, economically, everything. Yeah. How, how have you navigated 2020 from a personal perspective? Well, I mean, it's it's definitely been a pretty chaotic year. I mean, it's it's a hard landscape to try to navigate when... You don't really know what's going to happen the day after tomorrow. So, you know, you do what you can. You stick to as much structure as you possibly can. You know, thankfully for me, you know, stuff like fitness and all those things have been extraordinarily powerful tools in my toolbox in terms of maintaining some semblance of mental health. So that's been good. Um, but it's been ups and downs. You know, it's been lonesome, I think, for everybody. We're not getting that kind of connection that we need. And so that's, I think, been a pretty significant struggle for a lot of us. And I know it has been for me. But at the end of the day, you know, you try to surround yourself by the right kind of people and you reach out as much as you can and try to maintain those relationships and those connections. And yeah, you know, it is what it is. And what do you think about 2021 on the horizon? Are oh, you, are it's you... going to be just <laughs> a horrid nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? 2021 is going to be what we make of it at the end of the day. I mean, you know, and 2020 was as well. We're faced with something that we don't fully understand, and so we're doing our best. If we have some kind of positive mental mindset, I think, going into this thing, and we have hopes of perhaps being a little bit better and more charitable to each other this time around, I think we can have a, a hell of a year. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity when it comes to this kind of stuff in terms of changing things, and it's these kinds of events that do help to change us in hopefully the right direction, you know, but we have to have that kind of intention going into it. And so with 2021, you know, I hope it's going to be a great year, but uh, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of struggles. There's going to be a lot of kind of trials and tribulations coming up. So see what happens. You know, you and I have had a number of conversations about mental health and the mental health care system over the last couple of years, but I'm curious if you can remember the first time you and I actually met. Because <laughs> well, I have my own memories Speaking of confronting the madness. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the first time you and I met was when we were doing the hiring for, for the Mental Health Foundation, right? Right, 2015. And so I met you in an interview with a couple colleagues from the Mental Health Foundation. And, uh, and your interview was just so atrocious that we felt <laughs> so bad. That we I thought, fit the mold. Oh, you, you just, we had to give you a shot because we didn't know if you were going to survive the next day. So... <laughs> You came in, and it was so apparent that you were the one to run that foundation. I mean, it was unanimous immediately. The second we met you, we were blown away by you. 
and having gotten to know you, it's been, you know, one of the honors of the last five years is getting to know you better. I mean, granted, you have given me a significant number of nightmares over the last <laughs> while as well. And you've tortured my my own mental health in ways that are borderline indescribable. Mm. But uh, you know what? That was it's been a it's been a ride. Yeah. You and I. Yeah. I mean Well, I remember <laughs> the last um, five years have been interesting. So. They they've been fascinating. I know yeah. for me. And it's just been more recently where I've really started to internalize, you know, my own mental health or ill health, I guess, whatever, however you want to describe it. Sure. I'm, not, I'm not quite sure that anyone's perfectly, quote unquote, mentally healthy. But, you know, five years ago, I thought, you know, I would really love to delve into that from a professional perspective with the foundation. I remember walking into the interview and I remember the first time meeting you. I, I was the interviewee. You were the interviewer. You were intimidated, I assume. Well, you're six foot four, <laughs> deep voice. Right. Seemingly to me, you had it all figured out. And, well, and I was, I was angry. So. And, and you were angry <laughs> and glaring at me for the duration of the interview. Well, I just hated how much talent you had. Oh, I became yeah. immediately jealous the second you walked in. And I left and my neuroses just started saying, <laughs> well, that went horribly. <laughs> and that, that, Is that, that how you felt? Yeah. Really? Oh, that's how I always feel. And Wait, that, <laughs> and that, that is, yeah, no, that's right. That large man who's got life all figured out, I don't think he, he quite liked me that much. And so, oh, well, I'll never see him again. And <laughs> I guess unbeknownst right. to me, that was 2015, 2016. And, you know, you were, I guess, going through some significant personal traumas in your own life. And so, yeah. you know, I, I guess having had these conversations with you in private, just wanted to kind of unpack those a little bit if we could for sure yeah from, from a psychological perspective because you've lost i guess your entire family your mom your dad and your brother right uh, over the course of four yeah, years four years yeah and so you know if we could i guess when did mental health become something you thought about for yourself but also if you want to even go back further is when was it something that was a on your radar you know whether it be as, as a child right and then how did you become an advocate for mental health in the community? Well, so I guess three very large questions. <laughs> well, this will take up the next half hour. The first time that mental health entered into my life as a concept was when um, my mom was struggling with her issues. She was a pediatric nurse and an exceedingly talented one. It was her passion in life. And what ended up happening uh, was she was hit by a truck sitting at a, uh, a stop sign and uh, she ended up losing her job and sustaining some brain damage and some spinal cord damage. And from that point on, she was put on uh, OxyContin to help to manage the pain. She ended up being on Oxy for another 20 years after wow. that point. Yeah. And how old were you when you first? Around that time, I was 11, 12, 13, something like that. Prior to that, you know, my mother was an amazing, amazing woman. Like the softest. Did you ever meet her? Yes, yeah, you did. Yeah, I met her. I took yeah, a picture of you and her at. Uh, That's right at the breakfast. At an event in 2019. An exceedingly lovely woman. I mean, and very, very caring and gifted with kids. And uh, you know, she was she's a pretty incredible gal. When she was hit by the truck, everything was taken from her in terms of her vocation, and uh, she ended up spending a lot of time on the couch, spending a lot of time thinking, spent a lot of, a lot of time in pain, chronic pain. 
And then you throw Oxy into that, and uh, Oxy is a beast in and of itself, pretty nasty drug, especially if you keep people on it for a long term, which is not the purpose of Oxy, mm. but it tends to be something when, when, that... When did you guys, um, sorry for cutting you yeah. off, but when yeah. did you guys, you know, if she was on Oxycontin in the late 1990s, mm-hmm. was there even the understanding of awareness at the time that that was no. a dangerous drug to be on for a... Not really. I mean, you know, the assumption was that, you know, she was in severe pain and she needed something to manage it. What's interesting, you fast forward 20 years later and we get her off of Oxy and on CBD. And CBD did a significantly better job. Is that right, eh? Yeah, managing her pain than Oxy ever did. Wow. Yeah, so Oxycontin is a horrible, horrible drug, but it serves its purpose, yes, you know, for, in for the duration. Short term. Yes. You know, if you've suffered a surgery or some kind of traumatic injury, then yeah, Oxy for a couple of weeks, okay. But 20 years. Mm. You know, by the end, she was on something like 700 milligrams a day, which is an insane amount, but she got so used to it in her system, right? So they kept having to kick the dose up more and more. But anyway, so going back, she ended up being on uh, on the couch for quite some time, and she started reliving her past in her own head, uh, and her past was was pretty rough. She grew up in a pretty tough home with an especially tough mother and a father who, while loving, wasn't in control of his household. And so there was a lot of a lot of trauma suffered in that family that she, you know, had done her best to repress and ignore. And then, you know, you get hit by a truck and you end up on a couch. Wow. It's tough to shut off those thoughts after a while. And so, you know, it's why you want to deal with this stuff as soon as you can after a traumatic experience, because otherwise it's amazing how these things will fester. And how do you think she and, and your dad and your family mm-hmm. at the time, you know, 20 years ago, yeah. when even now there's a stigma around talking about mental health. Sure. How do you think that was addressed or not addressed? Yeah, not, not. I mean, you know, back then, the understanding of mental health wasn't as it is today. I mean, you know, there's still stigma, of course, but I mean, think about it just five years ago when you started working with us. Look at how far we've come in five years. You know, the topic of conversation mental health is pretty openly engaged with these days, which is a wonderful thing to see. Back then, there wasn't much in the way of conversation. So we were excessively private about what was happening uh, within our family to the point where we seldom, you know, we used to be a very open family. We used to have people, kids staying at our house all the time, my friends, Jesse's friends, all the time. But after mom's accident, we shut down pretty hard because dad... His number one job then became taking care of mom. Mom was challenging because she was in a lot of pain. She could be exceedingly cruel during that time. And for a long time after, she became a very different woman. And not her fault, but we didn't understand it, especially as kids. We didn't understand it. So the woman that I was really close to, I mean, it was my mother. I began to distance myself from her because... You know, she was, uh, the things, the kind of vitriol that was spilling out of her mouth on a daily basis was pretty ugly. And then how did you and your brother internalize that? And how do you think that affected you as you got older? And at what point did you, I guess, come to terms with the reality of what was happening through your childhood? That's a good question. I, throughout my life, was kind of the, the guardian of my family. I've always been the caretaker of them. And you know, in terms of the way that I dealt with it, thankfully, during that time, I had an amazing brother 
and an amazing father, you know, and a very sick mom. And so while we, we didn't necessarily do all the right things and we kept things very quiet instead of openly engaging with people about, you know, talking about mental health and manic depression and all that kind of stuff, I still was able to talk to my dad about anything. And dad was very, very open with us and very loving and exceedingly loving. And I had a brother who was, uh, who was in equal measure. You know, so we leaned on each other a lot, which, thank God, we had that. And, you know, and mom had her ups and her downs, too. It wasn't like she was, you know, this, this monster who was walking around the house. You just never knew what you were coming home to. And mom would go on to develop, you know, through her addictions, she became a gambling addict. And so that became quite interesting because, you know, gambling is, uh, is one of those nasty, nasty addictions. You know, for us, it meant that we'd spend many nights in dad's car driving around Edmonton from casino to casino to try and find her because she'd go, she'd disappear for weeks at a time. You know, and so the information that we would get from her psychiatrist was, you know, careful because it's not unfathomable that your mom could, you know, kill herself. So find her. When she leaves, find her. You know, that's a lot of pressure for, you know, a 13-year-old kid. 13. And dad, it was doing his best, you know, he was doing his best. He maintained a, <laughs> I think I got this from, well, I got this from both of my parents, but like his sense of humor was outstanding. And so while we would go through, you know, challenging things in our lives, I mean, dad was still hilarious. And so he could still put a, a smile on our faces, even while we were dealing with stuff like this. So, you know, that has been my way of dealing with things, which, healthy or not, a dark sense of humor goes a long way in this world. Especially when it's such serious um, things that you have to deal with at such a young age. Yeah, if you can't, I mean, uh, and I hold true to this as an adult now. Like, if you can't find hilarity in the insanity, well, you got a problem. (laughs) Yeah. Because this is a tough, this is a tough world. It just is. Yes. But it's also fantastic. But there's, you know, a thread of comedy that that runs through it, that uh, rings through to me. I want to ask you about your, your family, but also, I guess, more broadly, the concept of addiction. Yeah. Something that my extended family, addiction just runs through it yeah. generationally. Yeah. And I'm always curious about what, how people think that manifests itself, whether it's a biological construct or, or an environmental construct. Yeah. Curious as to how you perceive that. Obviously, your brother struggled with addiction as well. So he did, yeah. Just wondering how, yeah. that, how you think that manifests itself. I think it's always a combination of the two as it concern my mom, you know, Oxycontin is a, that's an easy one to get addicted Highly to. Highly addicting. Yeah. You know, and especially when you're in that much pain, you'll do anything to get out of that pain. And so for her, you know, that was a product of her environment, but then it became, you know, she definitely had, her mother was, uh, was an alcoholic, but functional. You know, her mother was a very interesting lady in that she was probably, she's certainly one of the most, the brightest people I've ever met. I mean, incredibly bright, but horrifically broken and would use her intellect in pretty horrifying ways. You know, she's a bit of a supervillain, this gal. And so as it concerned my mom, I think my mom came by it honestly, you know, that addiction was definitely in her blood. But up until that point, she had led an exceedingly healthy life. I mean, she was a smoker and she smoked. But aside from that, 
yeah, mom was was fit, she was healthy, and then addiction struck. And when it struck, I mean, you know, people refer to it sometimes as the ism, right? Because it's a funny thing how it you can be addicted to one thing, but it, it branches off. I mean, if you have the ism, it's not really the thing that you're addicted to. It's the escape that you're addicted to. And so for mom, it became kind of a anything to escape all the turmoil in her head. Mm. You know, and so that became a matter of, you know, it was Oxycontin and then it was gambling. And, uh, and then one day, you know, after years of, of trying to get her to stop and, you know, and then she'd stop for a while, right? And then she'd vanish for a week and then she'd stop for a while and then she'd vanish for two weeks. And then one day I remember going upstairs and she was sitting on the couch and uh, she said, I'm done. I said, really? Like, I didn't believe her. Yeah, what year are we talking here? It was like, I don't know, this would have been 98, something like that. She's like, yeah, no, I'm finished. And I swear to God, she never gambled again in her life. Wow. Like, this woman is a fascinating gal. Because when she decides on something, holy God, does she ever commit. And it's, it was one of the honors of my life to watch her engage in uh, her own life, you know, to decide that she wanted her life back. And so she quit gambling, yeah. cold turkey. She did. She quit gambling, but she still struggled. She still struggled mightily on the mental health side of the equation. It didn't obviously fix her manic depression any, and it didn't fix her pain, so she was still on Oxy, and the Oxy was getting, having more and more of a negative impact on her life to the point where, you know, eventually she couldn't function anymore. And so it was just, she pretty much lived at home and she stopped driving. And, and in the meantime, you know, my brother was an exceedingly talented baseball player. And so he'd uh, been welcomed to a school in California to play baseball, college ball out there. So he moved away and that was my best friend. So then it was just me and dad. And for me, you know, I don't think I was overly conscious of any kind of detrimental impact on my own mental health when it came to, you know, my experiences with, with mom and, and that kind of stuff. I mean, again, I, thankfully I had a, uh, a pretty good family unit, despite the dysfunction, real tight, really, really tight family. You know, when it was just dad and I, and I was kind of squeaking through school, I did not care for school at all. Scholastically, I was a real pain, you know, I was a C student, anything to just skirt by, didn't care for it. Then I got into university and finally decided that, you know what, what I should probably study is psychology. Right. You know, which, um, you know, my dad was a stockbroker, had zero intention of following him in, into that game. That looked like a horrible thing, terribly stressful. Didn't want to do that. But I got into psychology, I think mainly because I wanted to figure out what the hell was going on with my mom. Right. You know, and I figured I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. So, you know, why not go and spend four years trying to figure out your mother? And so you got a, a BA from, from McEwen. Yeah. And meanwhile, your brother was playing baseball on a scholarship in California. Yep. Yep. And so maybe talk through, you know, his journey with addiction and, and yeah, Jesse's, if, if, if you could. Yeah, absolutely. Jesse was, um, you know, again, when I think about the detrimental impacts on my own mental health, I weathered that storm pretty good. I don't think Jess did. I think seeing his mom in that state and having that kind of relationship with his mother that way was hard. I think that was a hard thing for him to go through. Also, Jesse was a very interesting guy. I mean, my brother uh, was two years older than I was, was 
one of these guys who was just born gifted. You know, the guys that you just can't stand because <laughs> they're so nice. They're so nice. They are very handsome. You know, like all the girls loved my brother. He was athletic. He was a born athlete. And you could get him to play anything, and he would figure it out. But his game was baseball. He was an exceedingly talented pitcher. And so, you know, like, from the outside looking in and from his little brother's perspective, that guy was my hero. One of the cool things about Jesse, too, is because of all that, like, I was, <laughs> I was portly. <laughs> I had horrible acne. I had a bunch of extra teeth that we won't go into. But I just, I, you know, when I smiled, I made small kids cry. <laughs> and uh, and I was blind. I had Coke bottle glasses because I was, yeah, it was just shy of being legally blind. So, you know, it's like the movie Twins. Like, that son of a bitch got all the good genes. <laughs> and I was left with whatever. So Jesse was, was somebody I looked up to hugely because he thought I was the coolest person in the world. Like, you don't hear that story very often. That's a good big brother. Uh, yeah, he was an amazing, amazing big brother. He was incredible that way. And so I was looked up to him. But what I didn't realize, Jesse had always been horrifically self-conscious, even when he was a little kid. You know, so how that manifests when you grow up, you know, you internalize that a lot more because you don't want people to see. And Jesse, on the outside, you know, he was one of those guys where you look at him and be like, holy, this guy has it all together. And he didn't. I mean, he was, he suffered in a lot of ways very quietly, I think. And didn't let many people in, including myself in a few different ways. So when he started drinking, he came back home from playing college ball, you know, and I think, I think, I don't think Jesse ever wanted necessarily to play pro baseball. I think he felt the pressure of everybody else's expectations that Jesse, I mean, his nickname was Lake Show because he was going to the show. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, cool nickname, but at the same time, that's a shit ton of pressure for That's a kid. a lot of pressure. Yeah. So when he came home from playing ball in California, he got on a road crew and started working, uh, building roads. And his luster for life started to kind of go out the window a little bit. He was never quite the same. And then he started drinking. I mean, he'd always drank, but he started drinking aggressively. To the point where I thought, well, you know, Jess parties a little too much. You know, like when he drinks, he drinks too much. How, how old are you at this point? Around that time, I was, I would have been 22, 23, 24, something like that. You know, those years, you know, we all just thought that Jess had a kind of an unhealthy relationship with alcohol, but nothing to be overly concerned with because us Lakefolds, we drink. A lot, lots of people drink. Oh, yeah. Especially you know, in your 20s. Yeah. And so it athletes. Was, yeah, we particular. just never had an eye on the potential for alcoholism or addiction. We always just thought, you know, Jesse drinks too much when he does drink. But, you know, then he has, he makes good money at his job and stuff like that. And so nobody was overly concerned. You know, at that time, I had gotten my degree and strangely decided to follow my, my dad into finance because I was working with him part time during university. And I was married at that point. I got married when I was 22 to, to Jolene. And, uh, I still, I had no idea what I wanted to become, but I knew that I had kind of got what I wanted out of my psychology degree. I'd gotten as far as I wanted to go. I didn't want to become a clinical psychologist, probably of the understanding that eventually I would need a clinical psychologist. <laughs> so I ended up 
working with my dad for 10 years in finance, which, you know, the first day of work, of actual work, my first true day at work, I showed up in a suit and uh, <laughs> dad, he looks at me, he sits me down at his table, he goes, okay, here's how this is gonna work. He goes, the second that this interrupts our relationship as father and son, you are fucking fired. <laughs> That's what he said. And I still to this day just cherish that conversation because that's how he was. Nothing, nothing would ever get in the way of our relationship. And that's why dad and I, for 10 years, we started every day with a hug and a cup of coffee and toast and ended every day with a hug. Every day. No matter. It's pretty special. Yeah, whether or not we argued or not, you know, that was, that was my dad. He was a pretty amazing guy. And so, you know, mom was still struggling heavily and Jesse was drinking more and more, but I was becoming successful in my career for the first time. I'd, I had felt confident in my skin for probably the first time in my life that I was making good headway and enjoying my job, you know, and that's a great job as an investment advisor. That is a wonderful job. If you are a hundred percent engaged in it, if you're not, it's a terrible job. Mm. And at what point did you find it to be terrible for you? That point came, <laughs> it came, I, you know, working in the job, Jesse's getting sicker you know, to the point where he'll distance himself for a number of days and we would have to break into his condo and we'd find him in just a puddle of his own vomit, you know, and he had drank to the point of incapacitation. And that's usually what he would do. He's a pretty heavy binge drinker. And so he would start, you know, he, would, he wouldn't drink for a week to convince himself that he had a healthy relationship with booze. And then he would prove to himself that he had a healthy relationship by having a drink and then going to bed. But the next day, he'd have four, you know, five. By the end of the week, he would, he would drink one to two forties in a day. I mean, two forties would kill me. I'm 230 pounds. One forties. Oh my God. Like you're a quarter of a 40 yeah, is a lot you're, of you're, alcohol. Yeah. You're well underway. So we would find him, you know, and then uh, lift him up and, and carry him into the bath and, and bathe him and, and then he would go uh, over to my parents and dry out for a week or two. And, and the cycle would start again. So that started being a lot of pressure on all of us. I think heaviest on my dad. My dad watching, you know, one of his sons torture himself to death. I can't, you know, you and I both have kids. And I can't imagine what that pain looks like. I know what it looks like as from a brother's standpoint. But from a father's standpoint, I think that's quite different. And how, how did your dad try to, if at all, intervene? Or how could you, I mean, it's such a, because yeah. I've, I've been through this as well. Yeah. It's a very delicate. Extraordinarily so. Balance. Yeah, you know, and denial's a real thing. And uh, with Jesse, uh, Jesse was extraordinarily stubborn. But finally, we managed to convince him um, that he needed rehab. Here's the problem with convincing somebody that they need re rehab. If they don't believe it, then it has zero impact whatsoever. It's just kind of a, a month-long vacation to a certain extent. And did he go somewhere yeah, he went privately? To, yeah, he went to a private clinic in Ontario. You know, we sent him there for three months, uh, the first round. And uh, man, the strides he made. But it was interesting because the, uh, the psychologist there would get on the phone with us and tell us like, hey, I don't think Jesse has a drinking problem. We're like, oh, really? Oh, you should, you should come to Edmonton, maybe, maybe live here and watch. And what was his rationale for? Oh, Jesse was, was he just, convincing. Well, when you have an addiction, 
I mean, you want to talk to some of the best liars in the world? Talk to addicts. You know, it's not their fault. It's just anything that they can do to just get away from uncomfortable topics to get back to, you know, their fix. Jesse was very much of that mind, very much like that. He would tell you anything. I mean, the way that he could lie and convince you was still to this day, I think back on it. It was amazing. Wow. Amazing. Mm -hmm. He was so good that he was convincing trained psychologists who work at a rehab center. Well, at some level, I think he, he probably believed it himself. No question. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, that's what makes it so, so believable. So he came back from that first stint. I mean, that was, uh, that was a hard go to get him there. But we got him there. And how long until he was back drinking again after the month? One month. About a month. Yep. And then same kind of thing, you know, he'd disappear for a number of days. And, and so you'd wonder if he was dead. And so eventually we'd, we'd be able to sneak into his condo and we'd find him and same kind of thing over and over again. And so we did that for another eight months and then sent him back for round two for rehab. Was he accepting of it again? Mm, I mean, to our face. Yeah. Mm. But internally, no, you know, he went <laughs> and, uh, you know, we get on the phone with him once a week and have a good conversation about how he's doing. And he was just so good out there, you know, like, because again, like Jesse's heart was so beautiful and so pure that he'd go out there and help everybody else. You know, his job became as a kind of a volunteer. Like that was Jesse. His mind was never on saving himself. His mm. mind was always on helping everybody else, but also killing himself, you know, while doing it. And so Jess, you know, at this time, Jesse's out there, we're back here, mom's still addicted, and dad gets the diagnosis that he has Parkinson's. And uh, that was crushing. I still remember sitting at, uh, at the table in the office and dad's thumb was just, just the slightest twitch. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, like what if he has Parkinson's? You know, we never talked about it. It was just a matter of like, hey, dad, you know, you should go and get that checked out because you're having some involuntary spasms and, you know, and just make sure that everything's. But the diagnosing process for Parkinson's is horrible because essentially it's a process of elimination. They don't really diagnose it. They kind of go through a battery of different things, what they could be, and just cross them off the list. And if Parkinson's is left, then it's Parkinson's. Wow. And so... You know, to get dad in to see somebody, because this is Canada and our healthcare system has a lot to be developed. It took him six months and that's six months of kind of sheer terror that he is now diagnosed and he's got to wait six months to see a specialist now. So that, you know, now dad's got Parkinson's and he's staring down the barrel of, he's been caring for his wife who is, who can't function for the last 10 years. And now his eldest son is uh, a severe, severe alcoholic. Yeah, and then there's me. <laughs> and yeah, and how are you? Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about you sitting there. Your dad has a very serious illness diagnosis. Yeah. Your mom's struggling with a battery of physical and mental issues. And now your yeah. brother's really struggling with, with addiction. And yeah. how, how are you? At this point now, internalizing all of that. I'm doing the same thing I always do, which is I'm going to fix it. That was, that's always been me. Don't worry about it. Like, you know, I even remember sitting and talking with dad and we were looking at, um, 
different clinics to do um, certain forms of cell therapy, stem cell stuff. One clinic was in Mexico, another clinic was uh, overseas. But uh, I didn't take any time to ask myself if I was okay. And it, it wasn't a conscious decision at that point. I started doing that, that later. <laughs> Ignoring that question, trying my best not to, to ask that question. But at that time, I was just so... I needed to f figure out how we were going to deal with mom. I needed to figure out how we were going to solve Jesse's alcoholism. And I needed to figure out how we were going to save my father. You know, and so, and I also at this time have a little girl, you know, my little daughter who's, who's brand new to this world. You know, she had been born in 2013. You know, so there's a lot on my plate. Plus I have a career and, you know, and all this stuff. And so there's a lot going on. I'm busy enough that I don't really think of myself. Well, and it's it's maybe in part a coping mechanism. Totally too. was uh, no question. It was absolutely it. It allowed me to still function and function at my best capacity for for a period of time. Yeah, and for someone, I think you know Jesse sounded like the same way where he's trying to help people at his rehab. Yeah, I'm the same way. It's a coping mechanism where you think helping people, I guess, maybe takes your mind off of the. Yeah, the problem and, and yes. focuses on uh, potential solutions, and so maybe walk through 2013 through 2018 and, okay. and how it all unfolded. Yeah, and then from your perspective as somebody who was Mister Fix It, right? Yeah, when things unfolded the way they they did, and yeah, how that impacted you, aside from the obvious. Well, yeah, well, I <laughs> I had um, I had my little girl. And uh, thank God, because, you know, she is, you know, we as parents always say the same thing, that they're, you know, the light of our life and all that. But it's true. <laughs> it really is. I mean, if I hadn't had her, this would have been a, a much, much more difficult thing to go through. But, the, you know, the blessing of having a child is that you get to stare at this miracle every single day, even if the miracle is chewing on you, which <laughs> happens a lot. Dad was diagnosed with a particularly aggressive form of Parkinson's. He got sick very fast. It wasn't like, you know, Muhammad Ali or Michael J. Fox. Um, you know, dad got really sick really quick. And, and what, what did that look like in terms of physical manifestations? He went from a point where, you know, his thumb was twitching to, you know, then it would spread to his hand, then his arm, his feet, his legs, to the point where he was... I mean, constantly shaking. Off work at this point or? No, never work, off work. Never off work. This man, yeah, to get him off work it would be that was his an purpose. impossible endeavor. Certainly one of them. And for him, he loved his clients so much. The, the, his responsibility was to his clients. So again, you know, you're talking about another guy who just, when are you going to take care of yourself though? And so dad and I, used to get into pretty, pretty heady arguments about this kind of stuff. Like you gotta, you can't have stress. Stress for a Parkinson sufferer is probably the single worst thing you can introduce in the system, chronic stress for guys like that. It exacerbates the, uh, the condition in pretty nasty ways. And so, you know, dad and I would have conversations all the time about, you know, you gotta, you gotta step away and, and give me more responsibility. And so he did, but he was always still at the office. Still at the office, but getting sicker and sicker. Jesse, still sicker and sicker. And my relationship with Jesse was becoming trying because, you know. Did you become the caretaker of, of Jesse at that point? Well, we Did all. Did you take over from your dad? Yeah, I tried. Um, dad was very much, this is my son. 
and you've got your little daughter. And I didn't want my daughter exposed to Jesse at that point. Jesse was only around, allowed to be around Adela when he was sober. And how often, how often was he so, or how often was he sober at this point? A week on and, you know. So it's still binge Oh yeah, still still binge activity, yeah. And so, you know, Jesse was, at this point he was unemployed. He was unemployable. He couldn't find a job for the guy. I mean, he was fired from his last job because they knew. I mean, it's guys like that. It's impossible to hide it eventually. And so Jesse was a danger. I mean, he was going to work drunk. Uh, he operated heavy equipment. He was going to kill somebody if he didn't kill himself. So thankfully, he lost his job. And by that point, he was he was pretty dysfunctional. I mean, he he couldn't do much. So he was, you know, sometimes living at the condo at his condo, and sometimes living with my parents. And meanwhile, you know, mom was was still mom, very sick, very scared for her son too, and very and worried about her husband, but also very sick in her own right. And dad was very sick. So, and for me, it was just a matter of, you know, trying to figure everything out. And then, you know, you fast forward to this summer of 2014, dad and I have this long conversation again about like, when are you going to take care of yourself? Right? Because he had told me that he wasn't going to take his summer vacation. We had always, always gone to Kelowna. Always. And he said this year he wasn't going to do it because of, you know, he had to take care of mom and he had to take care of Jesse. And, uh, he was over for dinner with mom in August and he and I got into a fight because I told him like, you know, you're killing yourself. Like you're sick. You know, it needs to be done. You know that you need downtime. And you know, I have to watch my mom kill herself, my brother kill himself. And now I'm watching my dad not take care of himself the way that he deserves. And so, you know, frightening thing for me, but I reacted in a way that wasn't overly compassionate. It was angry quite angry. And so he and I had a good fight. He left and uh, we got to work the next day and dad said, fine. He was like, I'm, I booked Kelowna, going to Kelowna. I said, good, you know, thank God you have to. And he went to Kelowna, uh, at late August and put himself in the Okanagan and, and killed himself on the 26th of August. And, uh, yeah. So that was, so that was an interesting experience. He, <laughs> he went to Kelowna to get some rest and relaxation was the, I don't know. I don't know if he knew that he was going to go to Kelowna and, and how, how, how did you know that it was suicide? What was the, I didn't at first, you know, everybody had suggested that it was the police officer. I woke up to a, a phone call from my aunt, my aunt Lori on August 27th. And the phone call was, they found my dad's boat empty, floating on the Okanagan at 2 a.m. in the morning. A guy who was traversing the, uh, the lake had actually accidentally run into it. And so the cops came out, hauled it in, and uh, couldn't find dad. Now, for me, you know, that could be any number of things. So I didn't believe, actually, that he had taken his life for a number of years. It was only later that... Um, Finally, I was sitting with my mom one night and uh, she had confessed to me that while I thought that she had been sleeping when he left for the boat, the truth was she was awake. And uh, apparently my father came and um, kissed my mom 50 times. And then she saw, and because he thought she was asleep too. So he just laid on the bed 
and kissed her and kissed her and kissed her. And she opened her eyes to watch her husband walk out the door and he grabbed uh, two bottles of vodka on the way out. And so she thought to herself, that's going to be the last time I see my husband, I think. So this, this happened. Yeah. And you, I guess, most people assumed it was some sort of accident. For I think a lot of people assumed that it was actually suicide. I mean, looking at dad's condition and, um, and how he was, I think, you know, people would have understood you know, if he had taken his own life. At that time, I wouldn't have understood it. I do now. I have a ton of, ton of empathy for it now. But at that time in my life, I, it was inconceivable. In fact, Robin Williams, just a few months previous, had taken his life. And so dad and I were sitting and having a conversation about like... How, how shocking well, that is. Well, that's not what you do. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. you don't end your life. You value your life. Was it easier at the time for yourself to think of it as an accident? And then when you came to terms with the fact that it was suicide, how did that sit with you? Or how did, how did you unpack all that over time? Slowly, you know, and yeah, I think again, your point is valid, Mark, that it was very much a coping mechanism. Um, I didn't want to believe that my dad would kill himself. That tragedy was followed by another one, which was followed by another one. You know, it was a bit of a domino effect after that. Yeah, and I guess maybe, so that's summer of 2014. So that was the summer of 2014. We went through it. I went out to Kelowna. I did the three-day search with the cooperation of the police. They searched the body or for the body for three days and then called off the search. You know, I did uh, an interview with uh, CBC Radio because it was a curious story about a missing man uh, on the Okanagan Lake. And so the media got the attention of the media. All of that stuff was kind of more or less a blur. Mm. You know, I remember bits and pieces of it, but uh, the brain is a funny thing. And it's funny how it tries to protect you from a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the sharper edges of life in terms of your memories of it. And so uh, while I remember some of it, I, you know, I certainly remember that dad died on August 26th and we celebrated my daughter's First birthday on August 28th um, out in Kelowna, which sounds horrifically depressing. Surreal. At the same time, it was such an incredible gift because for two hours, we had this little baby, this beautiful little blonde baby with, you know, a little party hat on. She doesn't know what's going on. She's not depressed. So she's smashing her face into a chocolate cake and, (laughs) you know, like try to feel yeah. unhappy while you're watching a kid eat cake, you know? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, not to cut you off on the story, but, you know, my dad died 12 years ago. And one, yeah. the, one of the things that has given me peace through, you know, not having a grandpa for your kids yeah. is that, you know, you are your dad, yeah. part of you, and part of your yeah. children Absolutely. are part of your dad as well. And so there's... There's something about new life that... And legacy. I mean, you know, legacy it's, it's that's that, that legacy of very deep. the bloodline, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, it was a tough time. I mean, that was, a, that was a horribly difficult time. Didn't know what to do with any of it. All of this stuff, you know, it had to be handled. And, uh, and so did you, at that point, just from a pragmatic mental perspective, take on your traditional, I'm going to fix everything yes. in terms of I'm going to take care of the funeral. I'm I'll going to- handle the funeral, the estate. Uh, we'll go through all that. I'll take care of the will. I'll act as executor and uh, I'll get it all taken care of. <laughs> Again, control. 
I desperately was clinging to the notion that I could control this, that I could steer this in the direction that I wanted to, that I could keep these guys safe. And, uh, you know, it was, it was an exceedingly difficult experience. I mean, um, Jalene and Adela and I ended up moving into mom's house for three months, which was extraordinarily tough, uh, very, very tough place to be, very dark place. You know, my aunt and uncle ended up moving in with uh, mom for a while too, um, but mom was in a horrible headspace. She was all over the place with her, her medication, which was making things very interesting. And it got to the point here where you know, mom's assets were frozen because when a body disappears, if there is no body, you have to prove to the courts that the person is dead. Wow. And that takes forever. And it is horribly painful. And not to go down that rabbit hole, but what proof point do you provide that's sufficient it's all the, legally? It's all banking statements and credit card statements okay. to prove that they're, you know, they don't have cash hidden away somewhere. I see. But, uh, so how, well, how is your brother... Horribly. Jesse now, you know, I flew out to Kelowna and uh, told Jesse, bought him a ticket and told him to get on the plane and, and he couldn't, he couldn't show. And it's probably best he didn't in retrospect. But uh, I got back home, put the funeral together, uh, had the fu funeral, did the eulogy. Mom passed out during the funeral because she was on so much Oxycontin. Uh, Jesse didn't remember the funeral at all either. He was, he was drunk during the entire wow. day. Wow. Yeah, I mean they were they were hurting in horrible mm -hmm. ways. It was hurt piled on hurt. Yeah, piled on hurt. you know it, it. Yeah, this is you know looking at this now. There was a lot of there was a lot of stuff that was happening before Dad died. You know, so it was a lot of a lot of weight already to carry. And so Jesse Jesse was getting worse. He ended up moving in with my mom, which was not a great idea. But I couldn't convince them otherwise. And uh, because of that. My relationship with them became horribly, horribly strained. Like I said, the assets get frozen until you can prove to the court. So I was working with mom's lawyer at the time, who was uh, not very good. We ended up getting a, a new one, Deborah McGuire, who's, you know, just a shout out to Deb. That lady's incredible. <laughs> but uh, the previous lawyer, who will remain unnamed, yeah. was not so hot. So... You know, trying to work with the courts at the time, trying to ensure that mom has money to pay bills and get food and all that. And uh, she got to a point where she started believing that I was keeping money from her. And so she tried to sue me. And so I got a phone call uh, from her lawyer while I was at a conference in, um, in Banff at the Banff Springs Hotel. I was coming home and I get a phone call from a lawyer saying, hey, just so you know, like, I'm not going to pursue this, but your mom is looking to sue you because she believes that you are embezzling funds and that the assets are frozen. He's like, I explained to her what's happening, but she won't hear it. So wow. he's like, just so you know, I won't take it, but another lawyer will certainly take it. So and that, that's got a, that's got a sting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That stung. So I got home, had a conversation with my mental coach at the time, a guy by the name of Roger Thiessen, who's a pretty, pretty amazing guy in his own right. And Roger had said something interesting, which was, you know, sometimes we get to a point in our lives where it's important that we fire our family members. If they become so detrimental that they're going to result in our harm, we have to be very cautious. And so you set up the boundaries that you can. But if it continues to be that level of insanity and it, it becomes that detrimental to your own mental health, you go sever ties eventually. And so I called my mom and said, you know, 
I'm doing my best. You're not the only one that's hurting. I'm here and I've been doing everything that I can. And I just spoke to your lawyer. So just so you know, you and I are done. And this is going to be our last conversation. And how did, how did she, how did she deal with that? Anger. She was just mm -hmm. so filled with rage at that point. Cause the world was against pretty her. impossibly cruel. Yeah. Mm. So she was, yeah, it was just anger. I mean, she was just, it was swears and, and, uh, so I hung up the phone and, um, a week later I get a phone call from mom saying that, uh, just thought you should know, uh, Jesse is in the hospital because he, he was in his hotel or his, in his condo rather. And, uh, he had gotten so drunk that he began hallucinating and he hallucinated that he was being robbed. And so he called the cops on his hallucinations. Oh dear. Cops showed up, took a look at the place, obviously found nobody. So they took him to the hospital in the hospital. The doctors can't do much. They can keep him there if they believe that he is going to be of danger to somebody or harm himself. Now for me, it's pretty evident at this point that he's a danger to himself. Maybe not to others, but to himself, surely. I had to beg the doctors there to keep him. They were able to keep him an extra night. That was it. I went to see him, asked if he was done yet, asked if he'd found his bottom. And Jesse still was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I just had a bad Den night. Denial. Like, holy, like you're hallucinating. Like I've never drank to the point where I have hallucinated. But uh, like full tilt hallucinations. And so Jesse, I went to his doctor and, and said like, listen, you let him out. He's going to die. Don't, how do you not see this? And I, you know, the doctor was following hospital protocol and doing the best that he could. And he got me an extra night, which I'm grateful for. But within the week he was dead. Wow. He, he got home and uh, a week later he had... Um, he was at my mom's place. He was in the basement. They had just had a horrible fight. Jesse was getting to the point where he would become violent. I mean, he never struck my mom, but he would grab her sometimes. And, and uh, you know, because that's the nature of the beast. You know, he's just, it's like a scared little boy in an adult's body now. And so he would have tantrums and get in people's faces. And, and I think what Jesse really wanted was to have the shit kicked out of him on a number of occasions. I mean, and he asked me for that on a few different occasions. So mom and Jess had had an argument. Jess went downstairs, I'm sure drank, uh, you know, a bottle of something or two, and then uh, slipped or fell or fainted, hit a glass table and severed his carotid artery and bled out on, uh, on the couch in the basement. What I would find out later was that my mom, I thought my mom, was in her bed sleeping at that time, but she was awake. Apparently she heard him actually go through the glass table, but she just thought that he was breaking stuff downstairs and she was so scared of him. She, that didn't, she didn't want to go downstairs go down. to see. And so, you know, imagine the burden of that guilt that mom had to carry after that. She found him six hours later. She finally went downstairs, found him six hours later. And, you know, again, can only imagine the kind of pain that that would result in seeing your kid that way. And uh, then I got a phone call from uh, from mom's one of mom's good friends because she had called. Our relationship was such that she would rather phone him than phone me at that point, which I understood. 
And so she called him, he called me, I went over to the house and, uh, and f found Jess. Uh, by that time, there were a bunch of cops there, a couple of ambulances. Never understood why there were two ambulances. I mean, there's only one body. So, you know, you want to scare the ever-loving shit out of somebody, you know, go ahead and send a, an army of ambulances to a place. That's, that's right. I got to the house and I had a conversation with the cops. They told me what they thought had happened, and then they told me to not go downstairs and not say goodbye. And I told them to fuck off. I was quite, quite serious at that point that I was, that's my brother, and I'm going to see my brother. And, and the cop was a beautiful man, wonderful man, you know, and I know what he was trying to do for me, and I should have listened, you know. So there's a little tidbit for you. Like in the moment, you get so passionate about these things, and of course you do to your family, but you got it. Self-preservation is a thing, and uh, so you went down. Went you downstairs. Saw your brother's body. Yeah, yeah. And in hindsight, that wasn't the type of closure that was. It's not helpful. what you. It's not the image that you want in your mind. Yeah, it really isn't. Yeah. You know, so I said uh, goodbye to my brother. Uh, went upstairs, and uh, you know, after some conversation and. and yeah, I, the, there's blurry moments there, obviously, but um, grabbed my mom, brought her back to the house, and uh, she stayed with us until we had uh, a condo ready for her that was close to our house uh, where we were living. So we moved her to Edmonton after that. And, you know, it was, it was funeral number two, you know, within 10 months. Did you take care of the funeral, do the eulogy yeah. for that funeral as well? I did, yeah. Yeah. Took care of all the details of the funeral, took care of all the details of the estate, and took care of um, the eulogy. One of the wildest things, just to come back full circle for me, you know, as I said, the first time I met you was you were on an interview panel. And this is now even strange to me that you had volunteered to be on the interview panel at that time. But to me, like you had it, you're the guy that kind of had it all together. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and so it's always. Interesting. Because yeah, this is where you walked into my life. When I walked into your life, and I think, <laughs> well, this guy's got it all together. Yeah. Meanwhile, you just walked through two years of what I would describe as absolute hell in many ways. So you never really know what's going on in somebody's life by looking at them for a few minutes. Absolutely. I mean, you know, during that time, I mean, thankfully, I was still working with the Mental Health Foundation because that was a grounding thing for me, I think. And, you know, was, I was surrounded by an exceedingly good board filled with wonderful people. So that was, you know, it was a support network for me. Thank God for that. And then you entered my life and you and I, you're one of the closest friends that I have. And almost immediately, like you and I clicked pretty much right off the hop. But, you know, during that time, yeah, I was, I was going through a lot, but I was trying to you know, again, refocus. So, okay, so now Jesse's gone. So now what do I have to do? Okay, well, mom, got to keep mom alive. Got to save one, for God's sake. Just, <laughs> save, just save one of them. So far, you know, you're 0 for 2, for God's sake. So, well, how, I guess, how did she handle the passing of, of Jesse? Was it a similar pattern to your dad? And, and then how did you, I guess, tackle your relationship with her from a reconciliation perspective yeah. before even kind of was, moving forward. That was interesting. You know, we had anything. We had the funeral for Jesse. And um, the funeral was on 
uh, July 3rd. And July 4th was my birthday. You know, I went into the office. I went to work. You went to work on July 4th, your birthday, the day after? Yeah, I just went into the office and did because I just wanted to busy myself and didn't want to, you know, I, I didn't want to, I really didn't want to talk to mom. She was very much filled with anger and rage and ready to direct it at herself and anybody within the vicinity. The only one that could put a smile on her face at that time was Adela. Mm. When Adela was around, my mom would, would shine again. But when she wasn't, she was not in a good headspace. So... On the 4th of July, my mom gave me the gift of breaking her humerus. She was, she took, you know, a handful of oxy and was sitting at her bar in the apartment. And, uh, she passed out, fell off the, uh, off the stool and landed on her humerus and shattered her shoulder and her humerus, which is, you know, the bicep bone. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, that's for everybody at home. Too. <laughs> so. She breaks her arm, and I get a call from Jolene saying, hey, you're, I just got a call. Your mom is going to the U of A hospital because, you know, she broke her arm, and so that's where she is. So, you know, meet you there. It's like, oh, okay. So get in the car and drive to the U of A, and uh, I go in and see her, and I forget what they gave her. They couldn't give her... Um, she needed a morphine. Strong, she needed a stronger. They something. couldn't give her morphine because, like, the amount of opioids that it would take to numb her pain would mm. kill an elephant. So, yeah, like, morphine was out of the question. So they gave her, I forget what it was, but it was something with hallucinogenic properties. Oh dear. <laughs> so I walk in, and mom, she's looking at me, but she's got this, she's got this funny, she's got this weird look on her face. She was happy to see me, which I haven't seen her happy to see me in a long time. Okay. She's got this big grin on her face. And I walk in, I said, Mom, like, what happened? And she goes, Oh, I broke my arm. I'm like, Okay. A little casual on the arm breaking side of the equation. And she goes, Yeah. She goes, Honey, I'm like, Yes, Mom. She goes, I had the greatest conversation with your father and your brother in the ambulance on the way here. Oh. And I went, Huh? <laughs> and she goes, yeah, no, I had this just amazing conversation with them and about, you know, how I need to get my life back and they love you and they love me and they're still here. Wow. Yeah. You know, so part of me is going, oh, dear God. I turned to the doctor and I'm like, what did you give her? <laughs> He's like, yeah, it's this. It's that, a it horse can, tranquilizer. It can have this effect on some people. I'm like, well, yeah. this is interesting. That hallucination that she had ended up steering her life from that point on wow. in a dramatically different direction. My mom would, uh, you know, she struggled with all of these losses, but for the first time she wanted help. And this was the first time that she figured, you know what? I want to live in this world. I don't want to just be a part of it. I want my independence. I want to be back. And so we started her down this path of getting off of OxyContin, which took her two years to do. And what was that? Maybe talk through that. It's a long process. I mean, Oxy, you can't go cold turkey. It'll kill you. It'll stop your heart. Uh, the withdrawal is way too strong, So, especially for somebody who's been on it for so long. So it took her, yeah, about... Uh, all, all told, a, a little over a year. Was it a, a weaning process? Yes. 
in conjunction with like an 10, alternative? Yeah, it was like 10% a month. So they would, they would take 10% off a month. And then they'd start putting CBD mm. into the equation. And CBD was, uh, was amazing. It was and absolutely that was incredible. obviously a private... Uh, specialist was, yeah. that you worked yes. through? We, had, uh, we were working with these guys out of FH Medical who uh, are now the Weiss Clinic. And uh, God bless that team because the kind of, the kind of care that my mom got psychologically, uh, she had an amazing psychologist. His name escapes me presently, but uh, an incredible man. And, uh, and she also had uh, Dr. Lin, who, uh, who I believe is still at the Weiss Clinic, and she's uh, just an amazing lady. What did that transformation look like to you, somebody who's watched your mom for 20 years? Hopeful, you know. Yeah. I, it was the first time that I'd seen hope in quite some time, and, and I was beginning to lose that. I myself at that time, you know, started drinking more heavily after work to deal with, you know, the, all of it or try to ignore all of it. So there was a lot of that. And meanwhile, you know, my mom's getting healthier and healthier. <laughs> you know? And so for me, I had, I had lost my passion for finance without my dad. The job just became a constant reminder of my dad not being around anymore. And so I had to, uh, I had to back out of that, that gig and I uh, wanted to start something that was more conducive to helping people on a, on a mental and physical front. So I started something called Holist Productivity, which was uh, kind of corporate health implementations that corporations could do and implement that would better the mental mindset of their people, thereby making them more productive. You know, it's, uh, it's based on the notion that um, Sean Aker came up with, with The Happiness Advantage, which is a great book. So we built that, and uh, I was... I did that for three years, right? Like that was um, selling that kind of thing here in Edmonton is a challenging, is a challenging thing to sell. But I was exceedingly happy that I did it. But after year three now, you know, I was seeing a, a mental health professional for quite some time at that point. I mean, I started seven years ago, eight years ago, with Roger Thiessen, which thank God I was doing that. But you know, still. Definitely struggling in a bunch of different ways, and and my own mental health was probably becoming significantly darker. Were you aware of that consciously? No, not really. It's only when I look back on how how my thought patterns had changed. But you know, I was always of the of the mindset that I was capable of doing anything. If I really put my head to it, I could probably figure out whatever I wanted to figure out. Mm -hmm. I went from that to thinking that I was incapable of doing anything. Mm. You know, what year are we at now? 2017? Yeah, 2017. You know, I was struggling with Holos. I couldn't get it, I couldn't get people's buy-in, corporations buy-in. That was a struggle. You know, my main prerogative in this world is to take care of people. And mm -hmm. the two people that are closest to me are, are now dead. Do you think that's was starting to seep into your conscious weighing on you a bit yeah, more? Which is hence the hence the drinking. Yeah. The masking agent of Yeah. Of our society. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and it's drinking is such a convenient thing because it just looks like you're socializing. Yep. But, you know, what yeah. I'm doing is trying to just shut the things up that are happening in my mind, you it, know, so that I can realistically, so that I can get some sleep. Yes. Yes. It's, it's interesting, just as an aside on alcohol, which I consume, 
maybe the most harmful drug I would agree with that in I mean, society and it's so, been researched heavily but yeah. it has this um, social acceptance that makes it it's benignly it, very yeah. very harmful yeah if you saw you know if if people did drugs the way that they drank people would have a lot more concern but it, drinking is so socially acceptable that yes. you know when somebody gets absolutely shit-faced you kind of brush it off, right? Or, or it's funny. Or it's cute. Yeah, it's, look, it's at, cute. look at Bob. Oh, Bob. <laughs> look at the vomit still on his yeah. shirt from last night. <sighs> so so you're, you did holos. You started holos. Doing holos and things are, you know, things are a struggle. Things are, everything feels like a grind. I don't feel like I can get any momentum. And also, I'm starting to have nightmares. And the kind of nightmares that you have when you're, when you're running a fever, mm. like these really... Like a fever's breaking. I would wake up after them and be soaked. I would have I soaked through the sheets, soaked through the blankets. I'd have to get up and towel off and then and then lie back down and try to get back to sleep. And I would have these dreams four or five times a night. And they were of the most violent nature. The kind of dream that you wake up and, and quickly question, like, what's wrong with me? That I would even have that in my mind. But they were just, they had no point to them. There was no narrative. It was just me observing the most ferocious, horrific, violent acts. Mm. And often, I mean, sometimes it'd be, you know, adults doing horrible things to adults. Sometimes it'd be adults doing things to kids. Like, it was just the worst kind of nightmare. I, I mean, describing them was hard, but I'd have them four or five times a night, every night, you oh. know? And so I'd wake up and be pouring sweat and hyperventilating and then towel off and, and try to get back to sleep and do that. And that went on for a couple months until finally we had my aunt, Wendy, my mom's sister, who is a living angel and who, who is a mental health professional. And so had her over for, for lunch for my mom's, well, no, I guess that would be after because I'm going through all of this stuff. And again, I mean, mom's doing better and better but I'm struggling more and more. And then we get this job in the States for Holos, which could be a big break for us. So I hop on a plane and fly out to North Carolina and spend uh, about 10 days there. And uh, while we're there, I'm trying to get in touch with my mom. And she's not answering her phone, which is exceedingly strange for my mom. And so that goes on for two days. And finally, Jalene connects with our nanny and we send our nanny over to check on my mom at her condo and my nanny finds my mom dead in her bed. She had succumbed to pneumonia. She'd gotten pneumonia while, while we were away and died in her bed. And that was, I think, that was the needle yeah. that broke the camel's back. I mean, that was um, my reaction to it. I didn't cry. When Jill heard back from our nanny and she had informed me of the news, I was so angry, like mm. no tears. Like I just wanted to light the fucking world on fire. That's it. And anger- Which was an interesting- was it, Do you think it was anger? I mean, one of the things that was so jarring to me at the funeral was, which again, I was there. Yeah. You did the eulogy yeah. for the third time. Yeah. You know, was, you know, there's the tragedy of the previous two deaths are unspeakable. Yeah. Something about your mom passing from pneumonia mm -hmm. after conquering 
Yeah, you know, an, like uh, I said, there was, there was hope. You yes. know, there was hope that she was going to be with us for, you know, a while. And uh, that she wasn't, you know, I still to this day, you know, I have, I have gratitude for it because I was given two years with my mom and that I wouldn't have otherwise had. I mean, she, she got off of Oxy and, and we had a good year and a half to two years together where she was my mom again and she was amazing. And more specifically, she was an incredible grandmother. You know, like that is, that was my daughter's favorite person. Mm -hmm. And so they built this beautiful relationship together. And that was the hardest part of it. Yeah. Was telling Adela. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was horrible. But, you know, I, my reactions, the way that I engaged with it was interesting because looking back now, I think that I'd just given up. Like at that point, on a surface level basis, I could convince anybody that I'm doing fine. Yeah. I mean, you know yeah. this. But internally, like, we're getting to a point here where, like, what is the point well, of this? I mean, like... The fact that you're so resilient even prior to that yeah, is quite... I mean, it, things were starting to look awfully meaningless. And, and again, now, now I'm starting to have nightmares. And now they're getting kicked up a notch. Now, also, I'm starting to have visions. And, you know, I take Adela to the bus every day. And I was... Uh, I was sitting and watching... Um, or standing rather and watching the kids get on the bus. And I almost every day would have this vision of her walking out in front of the bus and getting hit by the bus. Don't know why, but that's, I, that was a daily thing. And then my memory went and I couldn't remember mm. what I was doing anymore. So I couldn't remember the day before. Were your friends, <laughs> which I would include in this category, so mm -hmm. the answer to me might be no. But, you know, do you think that your friends were actively engaging you enough in terms of like helping you i am my or, father's son or you think you're too good at masking the i'm too good at yeah i'm too good at this i mean i you know what, what was interesting and we'll get into this in a little bit here but like your reaction when i finally opened up about things your reaction was uh -huh. beautiful <laughs> which was all you said was yeah <laughs> In terms of you yeah. having post-traumatic stress. Yeah, well, that was, so, you know, mom's passed away, but she has, um, mom's birthday was was in May, and so uh, so we celebrated her birthday without her, right? And at this time, yeah, I'm in a very strange headspace now. Like, I'm constantly nervous. It's a subconscious feeling. Like, I don't know what it is. It's kind of an ineffable thing to describe, but you just, I'm always... I'm, I can snap pretty easy at this point. I'm kind of ready to fight at all times. Mm. Like I'm almost looking for one. Right, right. And uh, You're frozen in a state yeah, that you can't it, even describe. It doesn't make sense mm -hmm. to me at that time. But uh, so we have, we have mom's birthday and my Aunt Wendy comes out and uh, we're sitting having lunch. And she goes, honey, do you know what post-traumatic stress disorder is? I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I do. Because, you know, like after it, all of this stuff, you know, people say to you every now and again, like, yeah, you might want to take a look at PTSD. And I'm like, do I look like, you know, like yeah. I just came home from NAM? Yeah. No, I'm fine. <laughs> yes. And uh, a very uh, military uh, yeah. bend to it. Yeah, which is, I think, starting to go away to a certain extent. PTSD yes. is getting a lot more focused these days, which is a wonderful thing. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of civilians that are walking around with this as well. But I had pushed mine away for so long that it was starting to affect my memory. One of the things that apparently can happen is that, uh, you know, your brain gets just so exhausted. And so 
uh, the communication between the right and the left hemisphere kind of went out the window and I could know my short-term memory was shot. Yeah. The nightmares are the nightmares common are, symptoms. are definitely there. The visions are there and my memory has gone and I am constantly, I'm a little more intense than I typically am. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there with my aunt and she brings up PTSD and I told her, I know what it is. No, I don't have it. Thanks for your concern. And she goes, well, don't you find it weird that you can't remember what you did yesterday unless you look at your phone? Like, yeah, no, that's weird. Anyways, moving <laughs> along, <laughs> you know, and, uh, the denial. Oh yeah. Yep. I just didn't want to, I don't know what it was, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to deal with anything yeah, at that point. Yeah. I felt like I dealt with enough. Well, you've confronted the most tragic three stories anyone could imagine. And yeah. then you have to confront yourself. My own. Which is maybe the, the worst. <laughs> well, and I mean, you know, again, you and I have had this conversation so many times. Like, I've got this undercurrent of just self-hatred that is so thick. Because I, in my mind, I allowed all of these things to occur. And how could you do this? You know, it was your job to save mm -hmm. them. Yes. And they all died. You should have fixed Parkinson's disease, yeah. Cody. Well, you should have, you know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a tough. But it, it sounds stupid. It was so real to me. Oh, yeah. So what got you to think about seeing if you had any PTSD type I promised symptoms. my aunt. You did. I promised my aunt that I would uh, go and take the, uh, I think it's called the PCLC, but it's the, the military battery uh, for post-traumatic stress disorder, the psychometric evaluation. Mm -hmm. So... So I take the, the exam, do the psychometric for PTSD. And I don't think they call it an exam, but yeah. It's a test. It's, a it's test. an you, exam. You got 100% on it. I crushed it. it. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I killed it. <laughs> the guy, the guy uh, who conducted it, Roger, conducted it for me. And uh, he comes up and he goes, <laughs> Well, the good news yeah. is, yeah, you passed. Yeah, you got bonus points for tears on the sheet. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. So, yeah, nailed that exam. Pretty proud of myself. You know, and then it's the discussion of, okay, so what, did, do, you, what did, do you do with this? When you, when you got the information saying you got 30 out of 30 or, yeah. you know, whatever, yeah. with a gold star, yeah. did the realization click in then or were you still kind of like, eh? No, I honestly at that point knew yeah. that something was pretty broken and that that was probably the reason. Um, but... Knowing and wanting to do something about it, like, you gotta understand my energy level at this point. I've, you know, I feel like I'd run it a, a decade long marathon. And so now I gotta fix something again, mm -hmm. you know, and this time it's, it's nobody else. It's myself. Yeah. And I don't want to fix myself. I do want to help other people. I don't want to help myself. Mm. You know, it's so much harder trying to help yourself. Yeah. And so I, which is, uh, a, which is a strange concept. It's, it's ridiculous, but it's a lot of work, you know, and it's the best kind of work we can do for ourselves. We deserve it, but there's a lot of trepidation mm -hmm. in doing these things. Well, you also build a facade of yourself in your own mind, and, and then you have yeah, to, yeah. <laughs> you have to unpeel that a little bit, which is. I always, I used to pride myself in my ability to step pretty much into any room and blend in pretty good. You know, the whole chameleon aspect yeah. of things. And, and looking back now, it's like, yeah, that was good. But I lived like that. Yeah. Like that's who I was, right? And so, you know, another part of this is, yeah, like, who am I? Mm -hmm. like, I don't even know yeah. who I am now. And so after having a conversation with Roger, he said, uh, you know, the good news is that we can fix this. This is fixable, but it has to be taken seriously. 
and you got to commit. And so one of the ways that we fix it is you got to take three months off of work. You know, and for me, it's like, oh my God, I'm going to take three months, three yeah. months away. Yeah. Who's going to run it? Like, Holos is me. I've got a team, but they're not prepared. I'm not ready. And he's like, listen, you know, your job or your life, what do you want? I kind of want my life back. Hmm. It's like, okay, well, here's some things you can do during this three-month hiatus. You can go for walks. I'm like, sweet. Like, great. I get to go for walks. Well, I guess I can listen to some audiobooks while I walk. He's like, no, you can't. You're going to go for walks. They're going to be a few hours, but you are going to listen to the sound of your footsteps on the concrete, and that's it. No distraction. You're just going to be you. You are going to learn to be comfortable in your skin. You can see your closest friends. That's it. No business engagements, nothing. You have to commit to just being around people that you are exceedingly comfortable with at this time because your brain is not right. And so it needs that kind of satisfaction. You need to give it time off now. And so uh, the first person that I talked to after that meeting was you. Hmm. you I thought you were going to say you gave me the three-month sabbatical notice after that. Oh, I did. I mean, uh, <laughs> I did. You and I sat down and I, I had to tell you what. Is this at uh, local? or where? Yeah. This is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was at local. And so you and I sat down and. And we talked about a, a couple of different interesting interventions that were, you know, looking promising on that side of the equation. And at the end of the day, I think I did say I'm not a medical doctor when we, when I gave you. No, you didn't. All oh, the, I didn't just know. a handful of drugs, and then you were like, <laughs> but, but you called yourself Doctor Corthius the whole time, true. which is yeah. yeah. But I'll tell you, man, the like potato. the three months off was. Uh, you know, there's all uh, there's a bunch of other things as it concerns treatment for PTSD, EMDR therapy, and and such things. And there's becoming some really really interesting conversations about the efficacy of using psychedelics. And I'm becoming much more interested in that research right now because of clinical utilization that looks exceedingly promising. And PTSD is a bitch to solve. It is. You know, and yeah. so we've got a lot of people struggling with it. It's good to see that this stuff is, is coming down the pipe. And for me, you know, that now, I mean, we're getting into 2018, 2019 now. You know, it was, um, I'm not the same that I was previous to all this. Of course I'm not. But I think one of the challenges that people have as it concerns a traumatic experience and, and then being somewhat discouraged or unhappy or depressed by the notion that they've changed is that like life is an evolution and we're all changing whether we're traumatized or not mm -hmm. like things happen and we all will experience some form of trauma and upset and pain and that's life you know that's just the way this works but at the same side of that coin I mean, there's just there is so much goodness in this world you know that we can forget to focus on and my, the, the last year and a bit here has been, you know, it, again, you know, like you get past 2019, I'm thinking, okay, 2019 <laughs> was garbage. 2018, just a, a bag of shit. In fact, the last decade, not overly enjoyable. I'll be honest. But 2020, you were bullish on 2020. 2020 was looking, looking yeah. real spicy, coming in hot, you know, and then the plague hit. It is, this world is tough. But when we're honest about how we feel about it, instead of what I was doing, which is focusing on everybody else, you know, that way 
I'm much more able to deal with myself and others. And I'm more than happy to shoulder my own burden, but I've also had amazing friends, including yourself, who have been shouldering this burden with me. And that, I mean, community mm -hmm. is everything. Yep. It has been for me. I mean, you know, getting through this stuff over the last number of years, it would have been impossible without, you know, the friends that I have and the uncles that Adela has. I mean, thank God that uh, we have the kind of community that we, that we have. Well, I mean, I think we could go down, we could probably talk for hours upon hours about, about your life story, but I guess for me, it just appreciative of you, of you being able to share what's a very, very difficult thing I would imagine to talk about. Yeah, it is, but it also, it's funny how cathartic this is, mm. you know, and especially considering I get, this is your podcast, mm. I get to talk to you about it is, is quite wonderful considering how close we are. You know, this, all of this is a journey and now, you know, the name of this game is to try to figure out, you know, who I am and what I want and, and what I want to do. But, uh, you know, it's led me in an interesting direction. You know, the stuff that I get to do now, you know, we own this uh, small portfolio of little purpose-driven companies that are entrepreneurial and also socially minded. And, uh, you know, so that's exciting to be around that kind of energy. It's good for me. It's healthy. Yeah. Well, and so you started uh, Raven Lake Investments. Yeah. And maybe talk a little bit about how, you know, your, your life now inspires your, your work from a, you talk about purpose driven, socially minded. Yeah. You know, when you think about investing in a company, mm -hmm. Aside from you know the return on investment from a financial perspective, yeah. what are some of the things that you're looking for? Because that's what's interesting to me now is we've gone through the pandemic and there's been a lot of, I guess, traumas that people have experienced. But I think going into 2021 and beyond, what's interesting to me is how people reframe work and life yeah. and purpose and meaning and community and try to nest them all together. That's what's interesting to me. So maybe talk about how you look at that through your investments. Well, for, for us, I mean, and for me, the criteria, a component of the criteria in terms of me investing in an organization now is what is it bringing to the table aside from, you know, the product? We got involved in a restaurant that was very community-minded and very community-driven. We've invested in a number of organizations that have the mindset of helping people become better, whether it's health apps. Uh, we've got a company called Umay that uh, has developed this thermo eye tech for thermo meditation. They call it thermo meditation. It's really cool, but it's, it's all about reducing people's stress and managing their stress and, and teaching them to meditate with a different kind of device. It's really interesting stuff. You know, we've got uh, an organization that's here in this office called Skills Trader, and, and they're a job board. Their job is to set up people in the skills, or people in the trades, rather, with organizations that are like-minded. You know, like, I want to invest in organizations, and more importantly, work with organizations that really want to better this planet. There's a company called Evolve that I've been working with, which for all intents and purposes looks like a gym, but realistically is, is think of it more of as a health hub. And they're getting some legs and gaining some really great traction. So these organizations, they just want to see people be better. And that's what I care about because that's kind of what I want for myself. And it's certainly the world that I want my daughter living in. They live right now in the twilight zone. You know, this is their experience as children. I can't fathom 
what this is like to live in for them. I don't know if it's you and I talked about this. I don't know if this is trying for them or not. Yeah. I think it in parts it is and in ways it's it's not. But that being said, what I'm curious about isn't isn't COVID-19. It's the world after. What is this place going to look like after this is done? And how are we going to be charitable with ourselves and to each other during this whole experience? And uh the time will tell here, but this is a strange world we live in, and as long as we can bolster organizations that are trying to make life not more convenient, but easier mm-hmm. mentally, you know, that we can provide organizations or this world with organizations that have this, this desire to help us on the mental health side of the equation instead of be a significant detriment. You know, some of the social media stuff, you know, is uh, horrifying, mm. you know, and especially as it concerns our children. So. You know, there's a lot that's going to happen in 2021. I don't know what it is. I gave up trying to forecast because, as you can tell, I don't know shit about what's yeah. coming around the corner. Maybe you should predict that it's going to be a horrible year. It's gonna, yeah. be, the 2021 is going to be a real, yeah. real nightmare of a year. So, Well, I'll just say this. You know, I've appreciated our friendship, and I appreciate you being the very first guest. Uh, it and is sharing an honor. what is a, a very, very tragic story. But, you know, the resilience that you've shown me and I hope others – is a testament to your strength as a person. So, well, thanks, Mark. I appreciate that, buddy. I couldn't have, uh, and I mean this wholeheartedly, but I couldn't have done this stuff without you. You know, I needed, I needed your kind of friendship, your quality of friendship, and thankfully I have it. So, well, thanks, buddy. And uh, next time, we'll have you on for part two, but it's going to be talking about the future, yeah, and not the past. No, I love it. That's exciting. Appreciate it, pal. All right, buddy. Well, that brings to a close the very first episode of Confronting the Madness. Special shout out to Cody Lakefold for sharing what was an incredibly personal story. Cody, your resilience is a testament to your character. Thanks again. Cody and I have recorded a second podcast going into more detail around post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic growth, and strategies for dealing with trauma. Unbeknownst to Cody, I fucked up the audio and we're going to have to record it again. But we'll get that out to you as quickly as we can. Sorry, Cody. Thanks again for your time. I also note that I did realize I did say potato, potato during the course of the interview. It was out of context and it's a terrible expression anyways. So I apologize for all those who had to hear that. However, given it's my first podcast, I'm sure you'll cut me some slack. I'm going to keep it in. I'm not going to cut it out. Potato, potato. If you like the podcast, or even if you like me, or even if you pity me, feel free to share it with your friends and family, colleagues, coworkers. We're on Twitter, Instagram, at Confront Madness. We're also on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and RSS feeds. Thank you all for tuning in. Stay safe. Take care. See you again soon. Peace.